Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. These are unprecedented times and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in, a good society after COVID-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in a live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. This week on the Compass Podcast, I'm so pleased to welcome Vince Cable. Vince, as you know, is a leader, an author, an economist and a dancer. He has led a political life at the forefront of national debates and events, a politician with what Dennis Healy would call Interland. So welcome, Vince. Great to have you on tonight. The format, as ever, will be I'll ask our guests some questions. Before that task is passed over to Gabriel, the our Compass members, to ask your questions to Vince. So, Vince, let's start off, as we always do with our guests, just by telling us where are you and, and how are you? I'm uh, sitting in my kitchen in Twickenham, and I'm very well, and I've been spending lockdown doing a lot of writing. I've got out one book, Money and Power, and another one on China, which is with the publishers, and which will annoy quite a lot of people who were beating the anti-China drum. And, you know, regular newspaper columns, and I've just gone on a television chat show, all the things you can do when you're no longer tied to a day job in Parliament. <laughs> and not quite leaving Westminster to get into politics, but certainly keeping political, which is great to see. And before we start the questions proper about you and your life and your thinking and where things are at, can you just say a quick word about the passing of Shirley Williams, a great social democrat, a great liberal democrat and a great Labour person? Yes, she was those things. I mean, she was actually a, a giant figure in, in British politics. I think one of the tragedies in a way of living to an advanced old age, and she was 90, is that people forget, and certainly in the 60s and 70s, she was a key figure in the Labour government at that time. In the 80s, as we know, she you know, helped form the Social Democrats, played a, a major role in that era. And, you know, was an important political figure for our party, but also before that for the Labour Party. And there were just a couple of, you know, personal things which I observed about her, which perhaps tend to get overlooked. I mean, the first is she wasn't just a Liberal Social Democrat, she was also a woman of faith. But she had this knack which um, Charles Kennedy had, and others too, of not letting her Catholicism get in the way of her respect for other people's convictions and her liberalism in a, in a social sense. So it was quite a tricky balancing act, but uh, she did it. I think the other thing is that she was, you know, she, everybody knows her as a sort of warm, empathetic, uh, emotionally intelligent, likable sort of person. But she was also intellectually rather brilliant, and that tends to get overlooked. Certainly in the immediate post-war era, she did a lot of thinking around the you know, post-war labor and where it was heading. Later life, she was a key figure in the Kennedy School of Government. She wrote one of the best and most thoughtful personal biographies, which I strongly recommend anybody to read. And you know, she was a really, really bright, insightful person and would pull you up short with any kind of sloppy thinking. Very fond memories of her. 
as everyone did. So thanks for that. And that was a, a little snippet into Shirley's life. Now let's bridge that into your life, Vince. Tell us a bit about your political life, the things that you want us to know about, so we can kind of think about what you're going to be saying later about the politics of the recent past, the moment and the future. So just run us through your political life. It'd be really helpful. Thank you. Well, I suppose there's a link with Shirley Williams, actually, because we're both people who regarded ourselves as being on the centre-left, but there's always been, well, certainly for the last few decades, a fault line, a political fault line of people in that tradition. And, you know, we went one side of it and other people stayed the other side of it. And we both also, I think, would, when we're trying to describe our political views, would describe ourselves as both liberals and social democrats. I mean, there was a title, you know, social liberal, which was dreamt up in the beginning of the 20th century, the days of the Campbell Bannon and Lloyd George uh, government. And I think that's probably quite a good way of describing where people in our political firmament actually belong. But, you know, I don't want to bore you all with my CV, but you know, I spent my early political life in the Labour Party. And I started getting active in the late 60s and studied Parliament in Glasgow, was on Glasgow City Council and worked with the Labour people of that generation, Robin Cook, Gordon Brown, who we co-authored a, a book actually on Scotland at the time, and John Smith, who I got to know and work for. But then I broke away with Shirley Williams and Jenkins to form the SDP, stood for the SDP a couple of times in my hometown of York and then came down to London. I happened to live in Twickenham, which was a liberal stronghold and got drawn into local politics and eventually into parliament. And you know what happened since five years in the coalition government and a couple of years as party leader in rather diminished circumstances. We'll come back to those, you know, particularly the coalition and the Liberal Democrats and where they are. But let's go back to that kind of founding value stuff, because you describe yourself as a social liberal. I mean, I would happily describe myself as a social liberal, just as I kind of happily describe myself as a liberal socialist. I think these divisions are not as great as some people make out to be. One description I always liked was that social democracy was organised liberalism. I think the variant in our politics is neoliberalism, which is very different. But I see the family being very close together. Is that how you see it and how you experience it? Yes, I think you can. I mean, these words are abstractions. I mean, historically, of course, they emerged from the same tree, you know, politically, you know, through the Lloyd George strand of liberalism, which became the Labour Party, or part of it. But I think the best way of explaining it today is by sort of locating it in governments that actually work and we can relate to. I would say you know, identified with quite a lot of the things you'd find in an advanced social democracy like Sweden. In my book, Money and Power, for example, one of the characters I chose to look at in detail was Erlander, who was probably the biggest figure in creating Swedish social democracy. And another regime approaching from the opposite direction would be Canada, which has a liberal government, but with a very strong social democratic element to it. And what they have, I think, is this combination of things. On one hand, they are private enterprise, capitalist, open economies, free trading economies, but they also have a very certainly generous welfare state. They have a significant degree of regulation of capitalism in both cases, manage the banking crisis much better than we did. Critias Canada as a model of how to do that. And then the Swedes in the early 1990s, progressive redistributive taxation, good public services, 
but combined also with socially liberal as well as economically liberal elements. And it's the, the kind of fusion of those things and actually making them work and making them work in a sustained way, which is why you've had social democracy in Sweden for a century and Canadian liberals are a strong and growing concern, one of the few liberal parties that's sustained in power. So I've always seen as, as an advocate of cooperation between liberals and social democrats, you go back the Liberals stood aside and helped the creation of the Labour Party. They then fueled the Labour Party through ideas via Keynes, via Beveridge. And then Liberals and Labour have worked closely, you know, the Ashdown era in Scotland, in Wales, we've worked very, very effectively together. But then you have 2010 and the coalition. And, you know, one of the reasons I was keen to get you on was to talk that through. So how do we heal that particular division and that particular instance? Do you want to sort of tell us about what it felt like and the upsides and the downsides to being part of that coalition between 2010 and 2015? Yes, I'd, I'd say a bit about it in terms of what happened and then what lessons we learned from it. I, I, it is important to go over that because a kind of narrative that emerged on both the right and the left about that time, which I think in both cases is wrong, but sort of self-serving. It's the old adage, you know, it's victors who write history and we were losers from the coalition and our version of history sort of disappeared. But going back to 2010, I mean, the two points that have always been stuck in my mind and they're still very vivid because those few weeks marked our political lives. The first was the sense of inevitability about the coalition itself. I mean, we had gamed it, but we thought it was much more likely that we would be working with Labour and when the election actually happened, you know, certainly I and some of my colleagues spent quite a lot of time, particularly talking to Gordon Brown, trying to construct a, a rainbow coalition. But it would have depended on Ian Paisley and or Salmond to make it work. And I think we took the view that that just wasn't feasible. And, you know, historians may judge that wrong. But we judged that the only way you could get a stable government was the one we had. There were people who were more enthusiastic than I was, but we all came to the same political conclusion. I think the second was the nature of the economic crisis. And this is where, you know, narratives have really diverged. I mean, on the right, the story that has emerged of that period was an incompetent, spendthrift Labour government wasting vast amounts of money, running up an enormous deficit, and we had to do the job of sorting it all out. No mention of the banking crisis. And the Labour Party has got its own version that this bunch of right-wing ideologues, and in the case of the Lib Dems, slightly less right-wing, but still right-wing ideologues, hacking away at the state, which they built up so carefully by socialists in the past and it was all ideologically driven and thoroughly nasty and again the banking crisis was written out of the story but my I would since I was the kind of economic person in the middle of all that there were some things that stuck out at the time first of all we were dealing with the banking crisis we'd not had that in modern British history and it had particular facets it was a real crisis of capitalism it was also it wasn't a Keynesian problem you know, this is what a lot of contemporary economic thinking is wrong. It wasn't a Keynesian problem. The banks couldn't lend. So, you know, spending, investment, but certainly in the early stages, you couldn't generate growth. It, it was a structural problem. And there was also an acute problem of confidence. And I think the story here has often got a bit 
garbled, but the way I distinctly remember it, and this was explained to me by all the key figures in the British economic establishment, including one removed by Mervyn King, was that there was a serious confidence problem. We had a flexible exchange rate, unlike Greece and Italy, but interest rates were already, I think, 4.5%, not like zero like today. So there was an incipient debt problem. Confidence was very fragile because the British deficit was worse than anywhere else in the Western world. The exchange rate would probably fall heavily, drive up inflation, potentially drive up interest rates, aggravate the cumulative debt issues. I mean, it, it wasn't the sort of tendency, I think, particularly on the left, to say that we were the sort of economically enumerate, incompetent people didn't know what we were doing. Actually, we did think these things through. I mean, in retrospect, it may have been wrong or partly wrong, but that was the logic of the exercise, and that's how we got into the government. So that's what happened. In terms of the kind of lessons you draw from the coalition, well, there are many. I mean, the most important one is how do you get a coalition between a very big partner and a very small one, right? We were outnumbered six, seven to one. Even if there were more of them pulling our weight, well, we were outnumbered three to one, you know, on big issues. Um, but when I look back on it, there were a lot of things that got through that shouldn't have got through. But there were a lot of good things that happened, you know, maybe quite small things to critics. But the fact that David Laws got the pupil premium through the school system, it's still used and quite important. We were criticised because of some of the very ugly welfare reforms, and that some of them were very nasty. But we had a man in the department, Steve Webb, and he looked after pensions, and he got the triple lock established, abolished compulsory retirement, so you don't have pension poverty. You may have other kinds of poverty, but pension poverty has been largely rolled back. In terms of the kind of things I was working on, you know, industrial strategy, which the Tories hated and they eventually accepted it. Setting up state banks, the Green Bank, which they then sold off when we left the government, and the British Business Bank, which is now the core of the rescue program. Setting up the system of catapults, which is based very much around driving a lot of the innovation policy at the moment. So, that, you know, there were a whole lot of things we, we did and, and we stopped some some dreadful stuff. I mean, I stopped all the Beecroft reforms around labor rights. Basically, they wanted hire and fire with unspecified compensation for people who left without any labor rights. We stopped that happening. And, and some of the really worst things about the benefit reforms we stopped. Now you can say, okay, that was mitigating disaster. But there were a lot of pluses, and they've mostly been forgotten, and they're now mostly regarded by the Tories and the Labour Party as conservative policy, which of course so, they were. So let's just go back to the politics of that, because I think it's really important that we understand what happened. I mean, although the numbers were, were difficult in 2010, the Labour Party, as a kind of corporate entity, was incredibly reluctant to enter any meaningful talks. I mean, you'll know in private yeah, how much Gordon was interested, but I remember people like John Reid and David Blunkett, you know, coming out and saying, no, Labour must go onto the opposition benches and clear the way. And the thing that we all feared in 2010 was another snap election in which the Tories would win an outright mandate. Yeah. They had the money, that was coming down the track. And although I don't, like, as you said, did you play every card exactly in the right way? No, but the alternative at the time was everyone believed a majority Tory government that could have done whatever it wanted. So yeah. I mean, you was in a tough position and you're in a position where for once there was a hung parliament under first past the post up until then it really happened. So you had an opportunity to impact 
the country in a positive way and stop things, which you kind of did, didn't you? And paid the price for it. Well, paying the price, again, I think history has been rewritten. I mean, you lived in Tennington, so you were aware of the local politics around us in 2015. Actually, if we just took account of the people who abandoned the Lib Dems who had voted probably tactically in 2010, so Labour and Green voters, a lot of them went back in disgust. If we'd simply taken that into account, we probably have got down to about 30 seats. But actually, we got down to nine. And that was because there was a swing against us from the Tories. There's no point complaining about it now, but they comprehensively shafted us by playing on a fear of Scottish nationalism. You know, you were getting letters around Tennington every day warning about the horrors of Nicola Sturgeon teaming up with Ed Miliband to form some frightful government. And the middle class soft Tories, many of whom had hitherto voted for us, fled for the hills. Just for the record, for people on the call and people listening to the podcast, there's still a lot of resentment and anger amongst some in the Labour Party for what happened in that period. And I think our message is, look, you know, you might not agree with the decisions that you, Vince, and, and your colleagues made, but it was done in good faith. You did some good things, you stopped some bad things, and it's the past. And we need to move on now and think about progressive politics in the future, um, given the history and the broader sweep that you've begun to talk about. So let's move on to that now and look at the Liberal Democrats at the moment. The polling isn't good, is it? And which suggests, is there a broader structural problem with the positioning of the party stuck at around six, seven, eight, on a good day, nine or 10 percent, but stuck around that no, level? The, the position is pretty dire and, and there's no point disguising that. And when you've had three bad elections, which is what we've had, it wasn't just one. I mean, the Labour Party had 2019 and they're pretty shook up with that. But we'd had three bad ones on the trot. So that knocks quite a lot of stuffing out of you. But the key point is when you have nine MPs, you never get called. I mean, I, you know, I was leader when we had a few more. It was very difficult to get polled in Parliament, very difficult to get on the telly. And the contrast from being, you know, Secretary of State, when you just had to open your mouth and television cameras would come rushing around to pick up some little indiscretion. It was very, very difficult to get attention. And that's the starting point. You know, we're in a very low base nationally. So you're, you're at the bottom of a vicious circle. And the question is how you get out of the vicious circle. And what I tried to do, and I know Ed Davis trying to do it, is to start from the bottom and work up and read build a local government base. Actually, we had really exceptionally good results in 2019. I think the best we'd ever had. And if that can be replicated on you know, in an annual basis, you gradually recover morale at a local level, you get local members, you get people into local government, they start running things, they build a reputation for competence, and you get an activist base that's more politically engaged and contributing new ideas. So we've got to get out of that vicious circle and you've got to start doing it from the bottom. I mean, it's good to have ideas and policy but I think that's probably secondary. I think the space at the moment is that with Keir Starmer, probably for very good reason, not wanting to engage with a lot of the kind of what you might call socially liberal agenda and the politics of identity, it's all rather difficult and trying to duck out a bit. And that does give a scope for the Lib Dems to be a bit more courageous, you know, speak more openly about Europe, immigration in a kind of liberal way. 
what is the kind of a central role for a liberal politics in the 21st century then? You know, why does it matter? Why do we want these activists? What are they there to do? What is the liberal vision? The liberal vision was quite narrow for about four years, which was centred on Brexit, wasn't mm. it? I mean, that was, it wasn't just that it was a narrow issue, but it encapsulated so many other things. You know, it was about internationalism was about a lot of the values that Europe represents and the fact that we lost the Brexit battle um, meant that a lot of that has gone and the task now is to try to find other ways of expressing those values which you know internationalists socially liberal in favor of decentralized government community politics to find issues where you can give voice to those things in a way that resonates with people and that's the difficulty at the present it's why we're probably floundering a bit i mean we're not it's not just us but you know labor have got similar mm. problems on a much bigger yeah. scale and i guess we're all trying to work through what that progressive narrative is that begins to unite the country more effectively mm. you know and counters I mean, the very smart way the Tories have built an electoral block from the blue rinse to the red wall. And that's looking, you know, with Scotland and Wales, that's looking quite hegemonic at the moment, isn't it? Yes, I mean, there is a sort of jarring contradiction in, in what the Tories are doing. But so far, probably because of the pandemic, they've only been there a year and a bit. It hasn't yet cracked. But, you know, you can't satisfy the interests of prosperous uh, people with property wealth and relatively elderly people in the south with disenchanted working class communities in the north and they're fundamentally different constituencies and probably have different values as well as different interests and at some point that's going to crack and they're going to have to make some awkward choices but until that happens you know they're they're sailing just looking back a bit broader i mean so the compass view would be that while the kind of blair years and maybe, you know, in your defence of, you know, quite right defence of some of the things that were done under Nick Clegg, that kind of more centrist third way thing was possible in an era of the Labour 60 consecutive quarters of growth, climate disaster emergency wasn't at the forefront of everyone's thinking, we hadn't had coronavirus, the tech revolution wasn't happening, the, the kind of the generational, the, the age quake stuff. There are so many pressures now, which mean that do we have to move away from that more centrist third way agenda or do you think it's still got something to tell us and something to guide us i think there's a real dilemma here actually and which i think biden's administration is very instructive because he's you know he's the ultimate centrist and mm. power politician who was found in office within a short period of time doing some unexpectedly radical things and I think there's a sort of method in that, because I think what he's realized, two things. First of all, you have to do big things. But secondly, there isn't a great public appetite for it. I mean, I was on a call last week with you know, people we'd recognized. And it started with a, an, an analysis of public opinion commissioned by the Pew Trust, which is you know, very good at deep digging into sort of popular views. And what came out very clearly was that for half the British public, there was absolutely no appetite for change, none at all or very minor. But then the other half really wanted change, but of course, different kinds of change. So when you have half the public, and I would guess most of them, the relatively elderly people who turn out to vote, not wanting to change anything, then as a political party fighting for change, you've got 
trouble. And that's why, in a way, I suppose Biden's thing is quite instructive because it's, from what we've seen of it, and we're only talking about three or four months, but it's sort of radicalism by stealth, which is a new kind of way of going about things. Whereas we've had, you know, Tony Blair and my party, I suppose, over-promising and under-delivering. You've got people who are <laughs> under-promising and over-delivering. And that actually, they may, although it's, it, it may be just a, a funny thing that's happening at the moment, but there may be a deeper deeper insight to be derived from this, that people don't want to be told about big radical change, but actually deep down, they would accept it if they had a government that was competent and knew how to do it. And I, th- I think it's really interesting, fascinating what's happening in America. We need, we all need to look at that closer. Before I hand over to Gabriel, just, just give us a quick glimpse of the book you've just sent off to the publishers. You know, we don't talk a lot at Compass about global affairs, but just give us a top line of the book so people can anticipate it for when it's out later in the year about how you see China. Yeah, I'd probably start by saying I'm not a China specialist. I mean, I went to China when I worked for Shell before I became an MP. We were doing long-term scenario planning, and I got interested again during the coalition government. It was one of our key target areas. Certainly Cameron encouraged it, and we did a lot with them. So I'm not an expert. I don't speak Chinese, but I've just been alarmed by the way in which establishment opinion, mainly on the right, but to some extent on the left, as sort of veered round to the idea that, you know, we've got this bogeyman, we need new world war to confront them. And there are, you know, there's some pretty bad things happening. I mean, it is a dictatorship. I think, first of all, being aware of the history. I mean, the Chinese government, of course, exploits its 19th century history, but I don't think we should underestimate the extent to which there is this combination of pride, nationalism, which derives from having been, you know, like a lot of countries that suffered in the era of imperialism in different ways, uh, from having, you know, made it at last and overcome 150, 200 years of being trampled on and lectured to, and the prickliness that goes with that. So I think it's, it's, it's understanding the history of it, and we conveniently forget it. I think the second is recognizing just how important they are. I mean, there's a lot of Western writers who point out the fragilities with China, modern China, and there are, there are some, there's a lot of you know, commercial debt and various other issues, but they, they, they now have an economy which on some measures is bigger than the United States and certainly comparable, which is technologically as sophisticated in many sectors and rapidly overtaken it. And we need to look at it on that level. And I think the third thing I would say, which is probably the most important message, that there are things which I would call international public goods, where we may not like their internal system and you know what they do to dissidents. But there are areas where we, you know, if the world's going to survive, we have to cooperate. And climate change is one, nuclear proliferation another, dealing with extreme poverty in Africa and the debt problems associated with it. Um, and, and more generally, you know, having rules uh, around trade and investments and the rest of it, which the Chinese have their own way of applying and um, but they, they want a rules-based system. Um, and, but the, you know, and, and they're very assertive about you know, having an equal status at the table and setting these rules. 
And I think we have to engage with them on that basis. And they, I think the kind of the finger wagging moralizing from the West, which is what's happening, however nasty the regime, really doesn't help. I mean, it's basically saying, you know, we, 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 we want to work with you, but you've got to be like the West and you've got to accept our forms of governance. And, and uh, I'm afraid that it just isn't going to work. And if we persist with it, we're going to head to conflict. I think, I mean, I'm not an expert either, but that sounds right to me. And what's the book called and when's it out? It's A Chinese Conundrum, which is out in September. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. It's Bloody Complicated is brought to you by Compass and is made possible by the support of our amazing members, like Clive. Here's Clive on why he joined the Compass community. My name's Clive Lewis. I'm a Labour MP for Norwich South. I've been involved with Compass for seven years or more and a member for a few years now. My involvement with Compass first started because it was the first left-wing organisation I saw that was really pushing forward the environmental agenda. This was, this was years ahead of anything that was being talked about in Labour at the time and I thought it was fantastic. I keep supporting Compass today because it's a refuge, you know, in a in a political environment, which to be quite frank, is extremely tribal, it's extremely difficult. It's the culture of Compass. It's about asking difficult questions and acknowledging that there will be differences. But actually those differences are a strength, not a weakness. You can be in any faction of the Labour Party or any faction of the Green Party or the Liberal Democrats or any other progressive organisation or in no political party. Just someone who's interested in the world around them and want to see the world change for the better. It's where I get my political sustenance from and, and it means a lot to me to be a part of that community. And that's why I would wholeheartedly endorse it to you. Find out more about joining the Compass community at compassonline.org.uk slash podcast. And now, back to the conversation. Fantastic, fantastic. Great responses to me. Over to Gabriel now to bring in some of our members, Vince, to ask you some questions from them. Gabriel. Thanks, Neil. For the first question, we're going to go to Wendy Fowler. Thank you, Gabriel. Vince, I appreciated your appreciation of Shirley Williams. Is there anyone you could point to at the moment in the shadow cabinet or the government front bench who has that kind of warm appeal and the intellectual probity that she had? I feel they're all a bit lacking at the moment. Thank you. Well, I've, I've seen some of them at first hand and they're, they're sort of different, but I, I, I took a great liking to Lisa and Andy. I mean, didn't agree with her on the Brexit issue, but actually had real warmth and intellectually very convincing and has these northern roots which count for a lot these days. Rachel Reeves I got a great deal of time for. I mean she's very good economic background, quite an impressive performer. And Angela Rayner was another very different background, uh, very working class but you know comes across to me very well. So there are at least three and probably quite quite a few more very very talented women but because of the way that the um, leadership of all parties is projected, it, it, it tends all to come through the leader, who I've also got a lot of time for, but it does mean that the diversity of talent isn't really properly reflected. Thanks, Vince. We had another question about Shirley. This question asks, what do you think Shirley Williams thought about the idea of a progressive alliance? And what do you think about it? How do we build trust between local political activists from different political parties? 
I think she was very much inclined to that, actually. But because the, the, there's a difference between the local and the national. I mean, what, what happens in over the last 30 years, I mean, before the coalition, in Hull, in Sheffield, in Liverpool, Newcastle, these were sort of Labour strongholds, and the Lib Dems were the opposition. And, you know, because of the way that politics does become polarised under the first-past-the-post system, we were the right, and the Labour Party were the left. I mean, that's the way politics in those cities worked, and it became very tribal. And so there was a really deep antagonism there, and that's not easily overcome. But if we look at the national picture, I would regard 1997 as a sort of tacit alliance. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, there was nothing agreed, there was nothing on paper, but there was a sort of very clear understanding, which was orchestrated through the media, particularly the Daily Mirror, and activists on the ground, that there were certain parts of the country, the vast majority, where Labour were going to break through. But there were some 50-odd places where the Lib Dems were more likely to, and we, by and large, left each other alone. So that kind of understanding, I think Shirley was very much part of the decision-making around that. At the last election, I certainly consulted her when we tried to craft uh, an alliance, which we did have, actually, with the Greens and the Welsh Nationalists. It didn't get us very far, given the overall dynamic of the last general election. But there, there was an attempt on a limited scale to get a progressive alliance. And I, you know, from what I know, surely that was, you know, very much her heart was in that kind of approach. Brilliant. Thanks, Vince. Next up, we've got a question from Rachel Dinley. Rachel? Uh, yes, thank you very much. What is the most compelling argument, in your view, to persuade the electorate that first past the post is a broken system and we need a single transferable vote to get better, more collaborative and effective government? Well, I think there are two parts to that question. I mean, the single transferable vote is an ideal system of proportional representation and we see it actually at work in Scottish local governments. It works well. It operates in Ireland and other places. It's not the only way in which you can get a, a better, more balanced system. Uh, I mean, one of the things that was produced, uh, was it 30 years ago? So the beginning of the Blair government was the Roy Jenkins report on electoral reform. It's a very, very good analysis. And it, it essentially came up with a model that was called AV+, which, where you have a combination of constituencies and a top-up system. And variants of it operate very successfully in Germany and they operate very successfully in Scotland. Whatever you think about the nationalists, the way the system works there is perfectly good from my point of view. And it's proportional. In terms of what the compelling argument is, I mean, I think that, you know, there, there are low-level arguments and high-level arguments. I mean, the low-level argument is that we're likely to get a Tory government pretty much forever unless, unless opposition parties work together to create a change in the system. The high-level argument is you get better government if you have a balance of forces represented in it. I mean, you know, and I... I think many people would agree that Germany is probably the most, the best functioning democracy in Western Europe, and it has a model system based on a version of PR. And the social democracies around Northern Europe, Scandinavian states, all have some version of proportional voting leading to coalition government, which occasionally goes to the right, but is mostly centre-left in its balance. Thanks, Vince. We've got a question from Roger. Recently moved from the 
south to the sort of Midlands and uh, I find myself living as a result of which nobody that I meet on a daily basis has any comprehension of what's really going on out there. Their view is basically conditioned by what they read primarily in the Tory press. And that's a massive issue in terms of how people view politics. And I wonder if Vince or anybody else has any theories on ways to overcome that problem? Well, the Tory press, like every other press, is dying, actually. I mean, uh, the Daily Express was once a massive force in the land, but it's now, I mean, I don't know what its readership is, but it's, it's greatly shrunken. And this is true of all the, you know, even the sun these days and the male have a kind of shrinking readership and their readership is relatively elderly and in a way it reinforces their prejudices but it doesn't create them and certainly my my experience with my own children and grandchildren is that they get their news and their politics from some version of social media you know they, they look things up on google and they find out what's happening in the world so the prejudices are not necessarily passed on from one generation to the other and i think we're underestimate i think we're too in a way too captivated by the so-called Tory press, it's, it's a, it, 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 it is a powerful force, but it's a dwindling asset. Brilliant. Thank you, Vince. Next up, we've got Brenda Slesser. So the question is, in light of the Liberal government in Canada continuing to exploit tar sands for oil in the face of the worsening environmental and climate crisis, do you think we need more radical governments to tackle these existential processes? Yes, I mean, there, there is a recognition that very soon we have to start weaning ourselves off carbon-intensive fuels, uh, and it is sort of happening. You know, in Britain, um, we've largely closed down the coal industry, but probably for the bad reason. Mrs. Thatcher didn't like the miners, and that killed off the coal mining industry, and we had a massive reduction in carbon dioxide emissions as a result. And the Canadians haven't had quite that problem. But and I think what will happen is particularly if the meeting in Glasgow is a success later this year, and if we get uh, the Chinese in particular signing up to major carbon reductions and net zero, as it's called, by 2045, 2050, there will then be a commitment all around, and it will be particularly strong in Western democracies, which Canada's one, to do something about it. And the big argument that's now going on in the Biden administration, because the climate bill is coming before Congress soon, is whether you do this through administrative action or whether you do it through taxation. And the carbon tax that would make the uh, tar sands in Canada pretty uncompetitive and comparable fuels is the best way of doing it. Um, But particularly in the United States and some extent in Canada, there is strong resistance to it. It will be a test of the caliber of the government, whether they're willing to face down that resistance. But whether it comes through taxation or as Biden is currently intending through administratively phasing out highly carbon intensive processes and fuels, one or the other is going to happen. The question is whether it happens quickly enough. Brilliant. Okay, we're jumping around here from topic to topic, but it's great to see such a broad range of questions reflecting your broad experience, Vince. Next, we've got Colin Miller. Hi, yes, Vince. I'm just saying to Neil the other day that obviously we spend a lot of time talking about progressive politics and the left, but we're not, I don't think we're talking enough about what's going on within the Tory party. And I'm just wondering what your reading of what contemporary Toryism is in the government is it a complete break from the past? Is it more of the same? How, 
how do you see modern Toryism? Well, I just became very cynical about them having worked at close quarters with them. It's not an issue of personalities. I mean, there, there were some perfectly decent people mixed up with some terribly horrible ones. And also, I, I think they're ideologically very light. I think this is the key point. I mean, we spend an awful long time, certainly in my party, in the Labour Party, agonizing about ideological principles. The Tories don't. Their objective is to get into power and stay in power. I mean, putting it crudely, and they will adapt and do whatever is necessary. I mean, if I mean one one of the episodes which I went away with when I retired from Parliament two years ago is was the way that they, you know, literally slaughtered their own pro-European wing. I mean, with utter ruthlessness. You know, people like Hammond, who were, you know, deep-dyed Tories, were just excommunicated. But those who were willing to crawl back on bended knees, Greg Clark and Matt Hancock and the others were, you know, readmitted to the fold and treated as good citizens. But it was the utter, utter ruthlessness within which they were willing to operate. And you, you'd never get that in my party. I mean, they're far too nice to people. And even the Labour Party, I mean, they've cracked down on Jeremy Corbyn, but they would never attempt anything as ruthless as what the Tories have done. So it is about survival, about power and being ideologically extremely flexible. I mean, that, that makes them a very dangerous adversary because you never know, know what they're going to come up with next and what's going to win for them. But if I could just jump in, Vince, I mean, they have morphed into this kind of English National Party. That's a big change in our politics, isn't it? And, and one that we're finding hard to confront. Yes, that's true. I mean, I'm not sure that how many of them really believe it. I mean, Johnson himself isn't an English nationalist. I mean, he wrote some provocative columns in The Spectator. But I think he was comfortable in his own skin when he was mayor of London. You know, he was sort of pretty cosmopolitan sort of character. And, and most of their leading figures are not nationalists by nature. They're not sort of splitting. They're not that, that kind of populist. But they know how to work it. They know how to use it. And that's what's so dangerous about it. I mean, these are people who are manipulating opinion rather than conveying it. I was just reading back over the history of the last decade, and I'm, I'm writing up a joint memoir with my wife. She wrote a diary, and I have my own cuttings. And there was a key turning point in 2012, which actually was the Eastleigh by-election. Probably people have forgotten about it now. The Tories are expected to win it from the Lib Dems because of Chris Hewn and all that. But actually, they were pushed into third place by UKIP. And UKIP surged in support. And they were a real, real threat to the Tories. And what's happened that within weeks, Cameron had made his pledge to have a referendum on Europe, which he didn't want and he didn't believe in, but he just wanted to co-opt the UKIP people. And you got... The Home Office let off the leash on immigration. They saw the threat from the right and they closed it down. And they're so good at doing that. So when you say they're English nationalists, well, they are. I mean, they've become English nationalists by default because that's what a lot of grassroots right-wing thought is these days. And they've co-opted it and adopted it. But I'm not sure it's, it's part of their belief system. Thank you, Vince. Just to close, looking back on your time in the coalition, Chris Marshall. Chris, would you like to ask a question? It seems obvious to me the Tories are always going to be in power because the left always argue amongst themselves and split into factions. Are the left just not as bright as the Tories who know that to gain power under the first past the post system, you have to show a united front 
that gives the appearance of competence. You've just said that really, haven't you? Um, and the Tories are after power and they know how to get it. Well, except I wouldn't use the word always. I mean, I'm sufficiently long in the tooth to remember and indeed been part of. I was a special advisor, the Wilson government and then Callaghan. And, you know, actually it wasn't all that bad. I mean, I know, I know it's now kind of written down as a terrible period in British history, certainly on the right, but actually achieved quite a lot. And then, and then you had Tony Blair. I mean, he's, you know, he's excoriated by people on the progressive left, but actually achieved an enormous amount. You know, Gordon Brown, certainly, in his role as chancellor, achieved an enormous amount. So, you know, there have been these periods, quite longish periods, where Labour has been in power. They have done a lot, um, but then they lost it. And it's then proved very difficult to retrieve. So it's not a question of always. And I think what we now need to be doing, and what Neil and, and Compass are doing very well, is trying to understand the conditions that would have to be created to give another of those moments it will come. I mean, people will get so fed up. I mean, it may be sleaze, it may be they will fall out over something. I mean, it's of the blue. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why within four years or possibly nine, people will just want to change. And it's been ready for that moment. And having the, the, the various forces on the, what we call the progressive side of politics lined up to take advantage of it. And I think we are groping towards it, Vince. We're groping towards it at least three years out before an election, not three weeks or three months. But there's an awful lot of work to do. And part of that awful lot of work to do is just having a dialogue with, you know, between, you know, people like us, between, you know, you and Compass and Compass and Liberal Democrats and Greens and progressives of no party. Because when we talk to each other and listen to each other, then I think we start to build up understanding and from understanding comes trust and then then we get action so it's been great to have you on the call tonight and to listen to some of this stuff i'm now just kind of you know thinking about a speeding fine on the m11 leading to brexit and the butterfly wings having an impact thank you for all of that and thank you for sharing your life and your great hinterland and thinking just leave us if you can vince with just some thoughts about you keep going. You're, you know, you're writing, you're coming on this tonight. You want a better politics to happen. What gets you out of bed to do this stuff? Where does hope come from for you to keep working and keep thinking and keep talking? Well, I think the hope comes from the fact that recognising the things I have done, which, of course, a lot of people have poured a lot of shit over, whether it's the sort of the, the, the dying years of the Labour government and the coalition years, that actually there were a lot of positive things done as a result of being there and actually being in a position to influence events. And I don't want good people, intellectually good, morally good people, just to feel that it's all hopeless and there's nothing can be done and we're just going to put up with this stuff forever. There is an alternative. It's very difficult. We can get there, having people communicating, not recriminating about the past, discussing both common policy objectives and tactics, um, both of those things, is what we've got to do. And I, I am motivated to continue. I mean, I've got out of Parliament, I did actually, but I never went anywhere near the House of Lords. And just, you know, writing, meeting, talking to people, and I hope that, you know, people from generation who've been through those experiences will, will keep doing it. Fantastic. And we need to draw on your experience and your lessons and your insights and certainly a compass will keep doing that. I've really enjoyed listening to you, Vince. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. 
The next edition of It's Bloody Complicated will be on Tuesday the 27th of April at six o'clock when we'll be joined by Mandu Reid, um, who's the leader of the Women's Equality Party. And then just to note for your diary, on the 11th of May, we'll have a big post-election special. Uh, so far, we've got Caroline Lucas, you won't be surprised. We've got Clive Lewis. We've got the pollster and legend John Curtis lined up to talk about what happens in the local elections, the Hartlepool by-election in Scotland and in Wales. So lots to pour over. Until then, thanks again, Vince. Thanks again, everyone on the call. Until we meet again, keep safe, keep well and keep hopeful. So, if you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast and you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one. You can tweet me at Neil, N-E-A-L underscore Compass, or Compass at Compass Office. And if you've enjoyed this week's episode, please give us a rating. It will help us reach more listeners in the future. And it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too.